Hello, my name is Moin Syed. I am a professor of psychology at the University of Minnesota in the United States. I think this new way of thinking, which is broadly in this master narrative framework, is a really helpful way to understand not only individual development, but societal development as well. Psychology has never been very good at doing that. This master narrative work is really trying to bring that structural level in. everyone, and thank you for listening to this episode of Researching Diversity. I am Miriam Schwarzenthal, and I work in inclusive education at the University of Potsdam in Germany. And today, Jana Fietze from Erasmus University Rotterdam, and I will be your host. We talked to Professor Moin Syed from the University of Minnesota, and this episode was quite special for us because we've been following Moin's work for some years, and we're not only big fans of his research, but we also really value his reflections and insights with regards to research methods and academic practices. He's a really strong advocate for making science more open and inclusive, and he also really pushes forward the implementation of new practices, for example, through his work as an editor. So what can you expect in this episode? This episode is about identity narratives, so about the stories that people tell about their experiences related to their own identities. We will also talk about so-called master narratives, so about shared cultural stories that affect how individuals formulate their own identity narratives and that can reinforce structural inequalities. Besides talking about identity narratives and master narratives, of course we'll also talk about open science. As always, you can find the references to the studies that we mentioned on our website. All right, let's start with the episodes. Yeah, welcome, Moin, and thanks so much for being here with us today. And uh, yeah, we're really happy that you agreed to uh, record this podcast with us. Yeah, happy to be and here. Thanks for the invite. <laughs> you're very welcome. So um, yeah, we both, I think, admire your uh, work on identity, but also like what I personally really like about your work is that you also reflect so much on uh, research practices and on a whole range of topics like uh Uh, open science and also mixed methods research and um, you also published some essays and articles uh, for graduate students on these topics which I personally found uh, very very helpful so um, I'm also glad to maybe hear a bit more about that today and um, yeah in our podcast uh, we usually always start every episode uh, talking about the past uh, so why did you become interested in this topic of identity narratives? Yeah, well, thanks again for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. And thanks for the kind words about the work that I spend all my time on producing. So whenever people ask me about the past, I always wonder whether I should give the short version, the long version, or the medium version. So I think here I'll try to, cert I'll try to go for the medium version. Sounds possible. good. So in, in many ways, I say, you know, it's easy for me to reflect on this now, looking back at my life. But I feel like identity has always been a topic that I've been keenly aware of. I grew up in the Bay Area of California, in San Francisco Bay Area, in a uh, predominantly white upper middle class environment. And my family was probably, you know, characterized maybe lower middle class and an immigrant family. My father was from India. My mom is European heritage. Um, but, you know, my name, Moin Syed, is clearly a different name. Just treated weird, you know, mm -hmm. from when I was a young age. And 
I had darker skin than others. And so from my earliest memories, I was being treated differently from other people. I knew that I was not like other people, right? Mm. And in today's parlance, we refer to the kinds of behaviors that I experienced largely as microaggressions, you know, questions of where are you from, comments about how interesting or unique or weird my name is. And then, of course, the less innocuous kinds of experiences of overt discrimination and clear messages signaling that I was not, um, not like other people, right? So I was always really aware of uh, those dynamics, both in terms of race, ethnicity, um, in terms of immigration, and in terms of social class. As I got into high school, I started to really kind of examine friendship patterns and social interactions. And I was fascinated by the different crowds that formed and the different friendship groups and the identities that they took on, which, you know, many of us notice that kind of thing. But then I was also fascinated by this next level which is the way in which those seemingly unrelated groups could intersect in interesting ways. So I had my friend group, you know, in the social circle, but then I also played on the high school soccer team. And there were people who I was friends with only in the soccer context who were on my team, who mm. I never was friends with in the social mm. context, right? So it was very context-specific kinds of friendships. And so that, that was sort of the earliest steps of me thinking about multiple identities and how we can have different um, embodiments of ourselves in different contexts. And as I moved on to university, I saw that expanding even more in that, you know, me, I, like many at that time, was still trying to figure out kind of who I was and how I fit into the world. And so I had many different friend groups that I would do different things with. You know, I had mm -hmm. the group that I could go, you know, get really drunk with and stay out all night, or I had the group I could go play chess with, or I had the group where I could, you know, smoke pot and have philosophical conversations, mm -hmm. you know, so I could sort of try on these different identities with all these different people. And so it, it just, the idea of, of, again, of contextual identity really came to the fore. And as I moved into my early 20s, then I started to really think about which one of these is the real me? Mm -hmm. You know, which one, which, which, what, what instantiation of myself do I feel most comfortable with? And so I sort of embarked on that project of sort of figuring out how do I make sense of the fact that I can be this different person in these different contexts. And, you know, this podcast isn't my psychoanalytic session, so we won't go through all of that. <laughs> but that certainly was part of the process. It's sort of that there was always identity on my mind through all those phases. And then I started studying psychology and I realized that, oh, this is actually something that people think about in an academic way mm -hmm. and that uh, there are folks who do research on this topic. And so that sort of got me interested in thinking about these, these issues beyond myself, but how they play out for other people. And so you heard about that really doing your psychology studies and then like, how did you actually uh, get into research? Because I think a lot of people learn about that, but maybe then they go on and choose a different path. But uh, how did you actually get into academia and uh, yeah, become a researcher and, and Yeah, good question. And was that a good move? I don't know. Uh, no, I, I think it was. I'm very happy with my identity now. I, I like most psychology students, at least in the U.S., but I think that's just is pretty much true everywhere. Mo most people get into psychology because they're interested in clinical psychology, right? Because mm -hmm. that's the exposure yeah. that they get. That's sort of the everyday sort of knowledge that they have, especially um, when I went to high school in the U.S. at least, high, high psychology wasn't taught in high schools at all. So really, I didn't know anything about psychology until I got to college. So 
like many who go into the field who think they want to be clinicians, part of the reason that they want to do that is because they have a history of being a good listener. They often mm. um, help their friends with their problems. You know, people often tell the same kind of stories. They have the same rationale for why they got into the field. So that's kind of what brought me into it. And then I took a course on Introduction to Developmental Psychology with Dr. Tom Spencer, and I was captivated by that course. I thought, well, if I want to be a clinician, if I want to help people with their problems, I'm really going to need to think about the history of those problems and the history of those people. I need to know their origins. I can't just think of somebody as they're sitting right in front of me. I have to think about how did this person get here, yeah. right? So I thought, to me, immediately developmental psychology seemed like just the most intuitive and most important sort of area of psychology if you really want to understand people. Because it's really the only field that seeks to understand people through time versus in a particular moment, yeah. right? So that got me keen on developmental. And then in that course, of course, it's more of a research-based kind of field than a clinical mm -hmm. field. So I started to see the research side of things. And I started to be exposed to what research is all about, which I didn't have mm -hmm. any idea what research was about. Mm -hmm. So that sort of just opened up possibilities for me. Now, that course I mentioned was, was taught by Dr. Tom Spencer, who is a man in developmental psychology. There are relatively few men in developmental psychology. Mm -hmm. And this is something that he was quite aware of. And so... He had this practice, highly controversial for reasons that you can you will understand when you hear it. In his class of 130 people, he always looked at who did well, who got A's, and looked for any men who got an A in his course. Mm -hmm. His course is extremely challenging, so not many people got A's. So usually there'd be like one or two men who got A's. And so then he would approach them and try to get to know them and sort of suggest, oh, have you mm -hmm. ever thought about continuing on in developmental psychology? And so that's essentially what he did <laughs> to me. And, you know, when he asked me if I'd ever considered doing that, I said, no, <laughs> you know, I never, didn't even know what this was, let alone what I would continue doing it. And basically through more conversations and more experience, I realized that this, that was a really good path for me and made a lot of sense. And so with his support, I ended up going into the developmental psychology uh, master's program at San Francisco State, who were at the time, Dr. Linda Zhuang was uh, a brand new assistant professor, which is when I got to know her. So that was sort of, from there on out, it was just kind of, this is what I'm doing. And this, it, it really seemed like a natural fit to me. For me, I was always somebody who really enjoyed math and numbers and statistics, but also really liked people and analyzing people mm -hmm. and watching people <laughs> and yeah. thinking about yeah. them and trying to understand them. And so I think when I got once I understand the research side of psychology, it actually seemed like the perfect blend mm. of all of my interests. Yeah, it combines really a lot of different fields, right? Like yeah, it math, does, social yeah. science. Well, that's yeah, right, that's, that's, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And like this initial motivation you had when you kind of decided after your studies that you would like to go into research, do you think that's still the same motivation today? Or like, do you think your kind of identity as a researcher has changed a lot and also your goals of being a researcher? That's a really good question. Has my identity as a researcher changed? Well, I think the motivation to get into research was always just that I find human beings fascinating, right? Mm -hmm. People are just interesting to me. And so at the end of the day, that's what we're doing as researchers. It's very easy for us to get removed from that context sometimes mm -hmm. when we're, especially if we're doing heavily quantitative kinds of analysis that are based on survey responses to scales and things like that. We sort of forget about the person that's behind it. And that's one of the reasons why I value doing mixed methods research so much is that by at least engaging in qualitative work once in a while, 
it helps remind me of the humanity that underlies all the work that we're fundamentally we're studying people. We're not studying surveys or studying statistical models, right? We're trying to understand people. So I think that motivation has really stayed the same. I continue to be fascinated by people and really learn new things about people all the time. My goals have changed, I think, in a lot of ways as I've spent more time in the field and have an established secure position, for example. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think your goals can change a little bit. But I've always been interested in methodological issues in the field and problems with methodology. My master's thesis at the time was on birth order and personality, but it wasn't a substantive study on birth order and personality. It was actually a methodological study on birth order and personality. I was interested in the topic, like many are, for a variety of reasons. It seems kind of intuitive. But as soon as I started reading the published literature, I just saw all these inconsistencies in how the research was done, how it was reported, what variables were included. You know, did they look at number of children in the family? Did they look at the gender composition? Did they consider how many years were between? all the different kids? Did they look at fully biological families or step families or adoptive families? Right, there's all this messiness. And what I saw when I was looking through that literature was that any, basically if you think of like the messiness as a huge field of mess, any given study is just being plucked from that mess, right? Mm -hmm. And so if I pluck 10 studies from the mess and I try to make some sense of it to say, here's what we know about birth order and personality, I felt like the answer could only be, it's a mess, right? Because it got plucked from that mess. That's all there was there. So what I decided to try to design a study that sort of illustrated that by varying a bunch of different methodological factors and showing how it modified the conclusions that are drawn. That was my first real study that I conceptualized, executed, and everything all on my own. And it really was a methodological project. As I moved on into my um, PhD in my early years as a professor, I definitely got more onto the substantive side of things about issues of identity, ethnic identity, narrative identity, multiple identities, all those kinds of things, in part because that's what the system kind of expects us to do, is to be more substantive experts. But I always had a strong interest in methodology. And in recent years, I've sort of returned to that original interest, and especially in the context of the broader open science movement that's going on in the field, it works really well because there's a lot more interest in these topics now than there used to be. And I still think a lot of those kind of major methodological problems that I observed in birth order and personality exist in that literature still, but in many others as well. And so sort of my identity as a researcher, to go back to your actual question, <laughs> is really it, it, it sort of has come full circle from primarily being methodologically oriented to getting more substantive and theoretically oriented, mm-hmm. which I still have a strong interest in theoretical issues. But then coming back to that methodological focus in a large part, not necessarily to point out the problems, but to help others avoid the problems. So, you know, to try to bring greater awareness to some of these issues so that more early career researchers will see that these, okay, these are issues I need to be attending to from the beginning rather than going through, you know, a PhD and several years after before really realizing just how big the problems are. I was just wondering because when I look back at my own studies, also studying psychology in Germany, it's super, super heavily quantitatively oriented. So we basically only learn about quantitative methods and I don't know if that's really similar in the US, but was that sometimes also really challenging to just come then and propose some maybe newer, a bit alternative methods and reflect a bit more about the conventions? Like, was that always easy for you or sometimes also a bit of a challenge? 
Yeah, that, that's a good question. I think initially what I was trying to do was was sort of easy and sort of not. I definitely had a, a supportive faculty for trying to do this this birth order study. Um, people were still kind of confused as to what I was doing or why was I doing it this way. Why not have a theoretically driven sort of study of birth order and personality? Why is it a methodological study? Certainly some of my friends and family, when I told them about what I was doing, they were sort of confused as to, are you doing psychology? Are you doing statistics? Like, what is it <laughs> yeah, that you're doing yeah. exactly? Which I think yeah. is pretty is pretty common. Then I went to my PhD at Santa Cruz, um, which was a very welcoming environment for mixed methods research. So certainly mm-hmm. engaging in. I'm very fortunate in that in during my formative years, I did not have, not only did I not have resistance to qualitative and mixed methods work, it was just what everybody was doing. Mm-hmm. It was part yes, of the context. Yeah. So to me, it was never really, there was never ch- a challenge around it in terms, I mean, there's challenges in actually doing it, but there mm-hmm. weren't like those structural challenges that many others experience where if you want to do a, a qualitative or mixed method study, your supervisor says no, <laughs> or if your yeah. supervisor mm-hmm. says yes, other committee members say no, or, you know, things like that. Yeah. I, didn't, yeah. I didn't have that particular barrier. And so I was very fortunate in that respect. And then I came to Minnesota. Minnesota is a very quantitatively oriented department, mm-hmm. very quantitative. Mm-hmm. I am by far the most qualitative person here, and I don't even really do that much qualitative work. Mm-hmm. It's extremely quantitative and has a long history of being very critical of research practice. So mm-hmm. it certainly is a, a great example of that sort of person environment fit that I already had this inclination of being criti- methodologically critical. And I'm in a, a department that has a long history of having that kind of methodologically critical view, which is not the norm in the U.S. You know, I think that this is mm-hmm. coming out or, or around the world. People are telling the stories, especially again in, in the wake of the open science movement of you know, really trying to be more thoughtful and critical about how we practice our research and meeting with a lot of resistance from mm-hmm. senior faculty in particular. And I remind our graduate students when I'm teaching or with my advisees very frequently that you are very lucky here at Minnesota that we don't have mm-hmm. that. Not only is there not that resistance, there's actually support and people yeah. are doing this mm-hmm. kind of work and things like that. So... But there's no qualitative work happening here. So it's like you always can get access to some stuff, but not to other. And I wouldn't say the work on diversity is so great here. Whereas in Santa Cruz and my training, again, one of the reasons I went there is because it has an explicit focus on the cultural nature of development. Mm -hmm. But in some ways, because I was sort of socialized and got my training within a mixed methods, cultural, developmental framework, I can sort of take that anywhere right? And spread it <laughs> to those yeah. who are interested. <laughs> Whereas those who don't have that exposure in their training, it's a lot more difficult, I think, for them to get it in their later phases. the present, I would like to ask you which paper did you bring today? Okay, I brought an outstanding article. I have a physical (laughs) copy in my hand by Ani Rogers from Northwestern University in the U.S., who, uh, for full disclosure, is not only an excellent scholar, but also a friend. And I've collaborated with her a bit as well. The paper is called, I'm Kind of a Feminist, Using Master Narratives to Analyze Gender Identity in Middle Childhood. And it was published in Child Development in this year. And I would like you to, to ask you now, if you had to explain this paper to your grandma, 
How would you do that in a couple of sentences? That's actually, yeah, this, this is one of the reasons I like this kind of work on narratives and master narratives is it does have a strong kind of intuitive appeal. Yeah. In short, kids, in this case, these are nine to 11-year-olds or so, have differing views on gender, right? Yeah. Some have views that focus very much on how boys and girls, if we stay within the binary for a moment, boys and girls tend to differ from each other, ways in which they're different from one another. And sort of some of them buy into those differences, sort of mm -hmm. believe those differences. Whereas others recognize that society is communicating image messages about differences and are actively resisting those. And you can yeah. see that already at this early age, I mean, relatively early, that kids are aware of and begin to internalize societal messages about gender. They hear it, they see it all over the place. You know, it's from their parents, it's from their siblings, it's from the schools, it's from the media. They get all these messages about how to do gender and the relation between the genders and what genders can do, what activities and things of that nature. And they get those messages, but they're not just passive recipients of those messages. Mm -hmm. Some people sort of passively take it on and say, yes, I agree with these. These are different, you know, men are from Mars and women are from Venus, right? That idea mm -hmm. that yeah. there's just completely different genders. But others hear those messages and analyze them and critically evaluate them and resist them. And in particular, what we start to see is that that practice of resistance increases as kids get older. I don't know if grandma would understand all. I think grandma's pretty, grandma's pretty smart, I think. So <laughs> grandma can catch that, all right. Um, yeah, and I think to use it in Oni Rogers' words, so she would say that narratives can either reinforce hierarchy, so that is what you meant, right? Yeah. So with kind of taking up the perspective that is already existing, like a strong divide between um, male and female, boys and girls. And on the other hand, disrupting the status quo. So on the other hand, the, what you called resistance, right? That's right. And exactly. Well what I found really interesting is actually how early in this article, kids seem to have a, a basic understanding of these differences or, you know, like an, an active disruption of this understanding. And what I found really interesting is I have a daughter of, she's almost two years old, and already she can tell on the playground, you know, oh, this is a boy and this is a girl. And right. it baffles me that she's, you know, learning her surroundings. You know, she's learning the same way she's learning one person is tall and one person is short. That's the right. same way she's learning that is a boy and that is a girl, you know. Right. And that to me is really yeah, crazy to see how early this socialization starts. And I'm kind of wondering what you think, like, how, how are we as parents already teaching these messages from early on? Yeah, I mean, there's a robust decades-long literature in developmental psychology about the ways in which parents and teachers and daycare providers and everything are socializing gender from before the time kids are even born. Yeah. Right. Everything you do from how you decorate and what toys you put, you know, in their room. But then it really goes as soon as they become more active around, yeah, what types of activities are supported, what types of opportunities are supported and so on. So, I mean, it's basically everything that we're doing is so, not, not everything, but the, the gendered nature of our socialization is so broad, it covers just way more than we could ever really be consciously aware of. And even if you, as any, any you, not literally you, but it could be literally you, any yeah. individual wants to be 
to really be conscious about their gender socialization and try to socialize in a gender-neutral context, that's great, but that's going to be extremely limited because your child has exposure to way more people than just (laughs) you as a parent, right? So there's plenty. Again, this is discussed heavily in the literature that it's really difficult to get away from this gender socialization. What's new and exciting, I think, about what Ani and others are doing, and, you know, she's not the first person to talk about this particular kind of thing. There's a history there, but this framing is kind of different, is getting more into the dynamic interaction between individuals as agents and that socialization. Mm -hmm. And the differences of sometimes kids are expressing agency and actively resisting, right, these messages and creating these alternative narratives, but oftentimes they're not. Mm -hmm. They are taking sort of the easy way, not consciously, but if you just take what comes, right? However people are socializing you, you just take it, take it up and make it your own. That's sort of the easy way to live. That's the way we've set up society is to make things easier for what's normative. You know, that's a very, that's not a very agentic way of living. And that sort of maintains the status quo. And that's what most people do. That's why it's the status quo. I think this new way of thinking, which is broadly in this master narrative framework, you know, that I've done a lot of work in, to me is a really helpful way to understand not only individual development, but societal development as well. It's really looking at that intersection between the two. And psychology in particular has never been very good at doing that. Um, The focus has always been on the individual without really thinking about the societal level the structural level. And this master narrative work, like what Ani um, and others are doing, is really trying to bring that structural level into the individual and figure out how are individuals interacting with those structures. And what's particularly exciting about what Ani does, because me and Kate McLean and others have been doing it with older people, you know, mm-hmm. emerging adults, adults, those who have fully formed frontal lobes and, you know, understand, <laughs> have at least some understanding of how society works. Ani's bringing it down to the kids. Right, and showing how this is happening with the kids and that kids are also engaging in this dynamic sort of evaluation process of choosing whether or not to accept or reject these societal messages that are coming from all sides. So it really shows the early, the beginnings of developing a different understanding of how marginalized identities can look in a society. And what I also found super interesting is that there was a very small group, I think only three of the kids that they were asking, who were actually categorized as gender blind. And that is something that struck me immediately because I'm... Um, so, for one, for example, one kid said gender doesn't really matter because you would probably always do the same thing. So that's really exactly what a kid said in that study. Right. And for me, it kind of taps into what I'm more familiar with from my research with colorblindness, right? So what right. we hear a lot in schools is we don't see differences between students, even when they're from different backgrounds. And that is often said because, well, we want to treat everyone equally, right? That from a certain well, from a point, from a motivation to say we want, don't want to treat some better than others, right. but at the same time negating differences that are clearly there. And I was wondering, in her study, they actually called it these colorblind kids, so who don't see differences between gender, as some who are also reinforcing the status quo. So they, they actually coded it as this is not against the status, so, but it's actually reinforcing it. And I was wondering why that is. 
Yeah, I mean, that is an interesting, how can it be that both attending to differences and denying the differences are both instantiations of the master narrative? Yeah, and they they are both, but in slightly different ways. So those who are focusing on heavily on gender differences, I mean, they don't, they don't get into this so much as kids necessarily, but it's coming from a place of kind of essentialized beliefs about the nature of boys and girls in particular and what they're capable of and what's appropriate for them and what their talents are and things like that. And that's a message that is, that's the most traditional probably yeah. message, right? That's socialized. There is kind of a more emergent master narrative trying to replace that one over the past 30, 40 years, which is more of this equality narrative, Mm -hmm. right? This idea that your gender doesn't matter, you can do whatever you want, we shouldn't pay attention to it, anyone's capable of anything, Mm -hmm. you know, and that has been... That's a master narrative that has sort of begun to replace that old essentialized difference narrative. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, in the work that Kate and I have done on gender in emerging adulthood and adulthood, we don't see that difference narrative very much. What we see is the most common sort of master narrative is that equality one. Mm -hmm. The, The idea that, well, everyone's equal, anyone can do anything. And it really raises interesting questions about if there is some developmental shift where the socialization around gender is more about differences as kids, but then becomes more about equality as they move towards adulthood. I don't know. No one's really done any longitudinal or even cross-sectional studies to really tease that out. But if you synthesize our findings and hers and put them together, that suggests a pattern that might be occurring. Mm -hmm. So there could be some different change in the primary socialization strategy as girls in particular get older, because a lot of it is socialization towards girls, honestly. Boys get socialized pretty much the same, it seems like, throughout of kind of like, you know, you can do anything you want, (laughs) you know, a limitless opportunity kind of socialization. So that's possible. That could be what she was capturing in that study was just the beginnings of some people starting to take on that you can do anything narrative that comes to take stock later. Why they're both considered master narratives is that they're they're both kind of wrong, right? Mm-hmm. It's both the case that boys and girls are not essentially different in these ways that they get socialized as young kids, but it's also not the case that differences don't matter at all, right? Yeah. <laughs> that is kind of a naive, just like with colorblindness, right? It's a way of mitigating the lack of opportunity and access and differential treatment and all those kinds of things by saying this doesn't matter. Yeah. So they're both methods of ensuring the current system stays the way it is. Yeah. By emphasizing differences as essential or natural, then it all makes sense why you see the differences. Yeah, and I think, I mean, you've already now referenced a lot of your own work. And I think you've done, you've looked into identity narratives from, yeah, different dimensions of, of diversity, I guess, or different dimensions of, of identity. And uh, also coming more from a personal interest, I was wondering... What can you tell us about how cultural minority members or ethnic minority members, racial minority members, how do they deal with identity narratives or no master narratives? And then most interestingly for me, how do they disrupt the status quo? So how can, you know, individuals actually find counter narratives from your own research? What do you know about this? 
Sure. So going back to the general sort of tenets of the master narrative framework is that master narratives serve to maintain the status quo, alternative narratives try to disrupt it and provide alternative counter spaces for people to live their lives. And so given that, not surprisingly, what you see is that those who inhabit minority backgrounds are going to be those who are more likely to be rejecting the master narratives, actively rejecting the master narratives, and creating these alternative narratives, creating these new ways of thinking about their person. Mm -hmm. Because the master narratives primarily are serving the dominant group. That's why they always, this is one thing we just always remind, because psychologists in particular are really bad at this, is the power structure is critical to understanding how master and alternative narratives work. They're Mm -hmm. master narratives because they are imbued with power that help maintain power amongst those who have it, right? That's that they serve the purpose of maintaining the system. So it's not surprising then that those who are not well served by those master narratives are the ones who are going to be creating alternatives and coming up with new ways of thinking about what identities can look like. And I mean, you see this with immigrant identities all over the place. When I was a little kid, this is in the early 80s in the U.S., there were these sort of public announcement commercials that were on where it would show, like there's there's one in particular I remember, it showed a little Asian kid walking around Chinatown in San Francisco looking at all the different kind of shops and taking it all in. And at the end, he says, I'm proud to be Chinese American, Mm -hmm. right? And they had a bunch of these for a bunch of different hyphenated identities. And so this was all about trying to create this alternative understanding of what Mm -hmm. it meant to be American, because especially at that time, I mean, it still is the case, but a lot has changed in that time. Either you're American or you're not American, Right. And this idea of having a hyphenated identity was relatively new. And it was very empowering for those who were feeling like they, you know, yes, they felt American, but they are also very much treated like they weren't American and also mm-hmm. had strong connection to their cultural background. So there needed to be some way to represent that. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the ide- idea of hyphenated identities came out and that really created an alternative life path, really, for a whole generation and then subsequently of immigrant kids such as myself who could really come up with this, have this strong hyphenated identity. And that was an alternative way of being that was legitimate and understood, if not still mainstream, it was still, it was considered acceptable. And hyphenated in that in that moment means, for example, Asian American or so, right? Correct. So just to, to explain what yes, the hyphenated identity is. Yes, thank you. Always good to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Chinese American, Asian American, you know, some kind of national origin or panethnic origin than hyphenated with American. Yeah. And that was one of the first things, as you both know, I do research in Sweden. And mm-hmm. when I first started working there, sort of understanding that, whoa, the context of labeling and immigrants and identity is totally different. Right. The idea of a hyphenated identity just doesn't even exist there. Mm. It's not an alternative identity pathway Mm -hmm. for those who come from immigrant backgrounds. Either you're Swedish or you're not Swedish. Mm -hmm. And so it just went to show how context specific these kind of movements are and how you sort of you need to have not only sufficient numbers of people, which you do in Sweden, but also access to sufficient systems of power to get those messages out. You know, the people who I don't know, I should look up. I don't know who was making those commercials when I was a kid, but somebody (laughs) was able to make them and get them on TV, right, to communicate this kind of thing. Yeah, I was also wondering, I mean, what would it actually take to change these maybe master narratives? Because like one thing that was also said in the article that I found kind of interesting is that she also said there were some boys who also questioned these narratives. And right. that was mainly the case because they kind of observed their impact on girls. So 
I was wondering, I mean, what might also be ways for like those who maybe profit from these narratives to engage in uh, developing counter narratives? Yeah, I mean, that's the big question, right? So <laughs> who knows? The thing is, one of the principles that we identified of master narratives is that they're rigid. They're not mm -hmm. easily changed. Right. So you're not just going to deploy an intervention in a school and get everyone to change you know, their master narratives. You, may, you can get some people to change a little bit, but they're at the societal level. They change slowly over time and with great effort. But still, they can change, right? So the question is, how do you change them? A lot of interventions often focus on, well, I wouldn't say that, not often, but sometimes interventions are focusing on those who are different in some way, those mm -hmm. who are embodying the alternative nar narrative and not on those. Like, so empowering girls and women, right? Mm -hmm. That's an intervention. That's great. Well, intention makes a lot of sense. Instill agency, right? Send the message that the structures can be overcome and all these kinds of things. That's great. But as you said, Miriam, there needs to be intervention with the men, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And the boys, like, how do you not maintain this system of oppression? And of course, this is being discussed quite a bit, well, less so now, but over the summer around race and whiteness and the importance of white allies and whites rejecting, not just being passively anti-racist, but actively anti-racist, right? That yeah. you have to, that involves active relinquishment of one's privilege. That's the kind of thing that could lead to that large scale change. You have to have change on both sort of levels where you have to have a, an increasing of an alternative counter perspective and a lessening of the master narrative. So also raising feminist boys, for example. Absolutely, yeah, right. actually to our next section, the future section. And uh, there we want to talk to you a bit about uh, what changes you would like to see in the following years um, with regards to your research topic of identity narratives. Do you have any thoughts or also plans maybe what you plan to work on in the future? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm really excited about one of the reasons I chose uh, the article by Ani Rogers to highlight is, you know, I really think this master narrative perspective has a strong future in terms of studying narrative. And it's really just getting off the ground. Now, to be clear, the idea of master narratives has been around for a long time. It's an old concept, largely from sociology and qualitative and discursive psychology have talked more about master narratives. But a lot of it was done in a way... And this isn't to be to denigrate those that work at all, but just in a way that was sort of loose or unclear sometimes. Like the, it wasn't clear what it what was meant by a master narrative. How do you know something was a master narrative? What are its properties? All those kinds of things. And so that's what compelled Kate McLean and I to write an article that really tried to outline and parameterize sort of master narratives. And it was really trying to bring the concept from what we saw as more the fringes of psychology and more squarely in into mainstream psychology, or at least mainstream mm -hmm. psychology that works with marginalized identities, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which is sort of like a couple steps removed. It used to be like way out here. We're just trying to bring it in a little bit. By, you know, trying to put some structure on the concept, by outlining principles and types and trying to mm -hmm. identify mechanisms, right? Sort of using the language of psychological research that people could then recognize and say, hey, I'd be able to use this in some of my work. Mm -hmm. And I've written a lot of papers and none have gotten the reaction that that one has, mm -hmm. for sure. That has definitely been the one that I, the most people ask about, 
that I see people, other people using, you know, the framework and trying to think about it and extending it. It definitely seems to hit a chord. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're starting to see several empirical papers kind of coming out from that work, like Ani's work and others. And I think it will be continuing because I believe there's, I guess all of this, I mean, that's all very self-serving, right? It's work that I did. And it's nice to see it be, <laughs> it's nice to see people using it. But it's a broader point of the reason why we were so excited about advancing these ideas is because, as I mentioned earlier, in general, psychology just needs to do a better job of incorporating a structural perspective mm -hmm. into its work. So that's the broader point. The master narrative framework is one way to do that. But if we're going to look just in general, do it however you want, use whatever framework or method you want. But if we're looking at narrative psychology and identity moving forward, we can no longer use the unlimited free choice, agent, unlimited agency, full autonomy, life is possible kind of models of identity yeah. that have predominated for so long yeah. because that's just not the case. And we certainly know it's not the case, obviously, for those who occupy marginalized positions, but it's not even really the case for those who are in dominant positions, right? There's yeah. a, there's just a, there are a lot of barriers and challenges that people face, both individual, relational, structural, and that we need to acknowledge and understand those. And so I'm excited that the Master Narrative Framework is getting some interest because it's incorporating those ideas more into thinking about identity and narrative. And I just think we need a lot more of that. And one, finally, one thing, we need to do that in a way that still preserves the individual level psychological perspectives, which I think is still really important. Because if we wanted to go completely mm -hmm. structural, we'll go over to sociology or something. We're not sociology. So now that we already talked about structures and disciplines, our next question was, what kinds of changes would you also like to see in the following years with regards to structures or practices in academia in general? So more like the broader structures. I mean, we both know you're very active in the field of open science mm -hmm. and have also been active there actually right from the beginning on, I think. So much earlier than some of us who are just getting into open science right now. So let's say we are the late bloomers of the, of the That's open okay. Sciences. We'll take you anytime. <laughs> anytime you want. It's great. There's no club um, membership or anything like that. You can The you open can join science anytime. ID. Yes. <laughs> the club card. That's the whole point. The it's open, open science anytime. Just Exactly. So are there any like changes with regards to open science, like broadening the club, inviting even more people or like other changes you would like to see yeah. in the following years with regards to that? Yeah, no, definitely. And I think this, my interest in this very much is related to my interest in developing a more structurally minded psychology because open science is fundamentally about, it's a structural reform, right? Yeah. It's about mm -hmm. changing the structure of science and trying to improve the structure because so many of us in academia are beholden to that structure and we do whatever that structure says, right? I mean, the most pernicious sort of methodological problem over the past 70 years regarding methodology and statistics has been publication bias, right? That we, the inability or the fact that we just do not publish null results, right? We only publish positive results. This was documented by Sterling in 1959 and has been documented every couple years by various analyses ever since. And they consistently find the same thing that about 95% of published articles show positive effects. So positive meaning uh, like evidence a significantly, for an yeah. significantly yeah, changes or any, any effects that come up statistically significant. Correct. Those are the ones who are being much more published or yeah, much than, more. than effects that are just not there. 
for example. Correct. So usually, it's interesting, actually, if you look back at the Sterling article in 1959, it wasn't all based on statistical significance because null hypothesis significance testing hadn't fully taken hold in the field yet at that Mm -hmm. point. It's important to note that it hasn't always been this way, (laughs) right? There have been other ways. I teach a course this morning, a graduate course called History and Methods of Psychology. And so we study Ah. sort of where students learn about the history of the field through a study of the methodology that's been used over time and how many of the debates and issues that are being discussed today have actually existed for a long time and how many folks have drawn attention to those issues over time, but that often those efforts were ignored and how now Mm -hmm. what we're seeing is a movement that's finally actually gaining some steam. But yeah, the focus on p-values and null hypothesis testing has not always been there. So many of the papers, I forget the percentage, but that Sterling reviewed in in 1959 didn't have any hypothesis testing p-values in it, and yet were reporting on support of their primary hypotheses. So if you're looking at the percent of papers that are providing support for the primary hypotheses, the consistent estimates are 90 to 95% of published articles Mm -hmm. do that. I mean, this gets into a complex web of many issues, but we know that has to be false because the other thing we've known for decades is that the vast majority of published psychology articles are vastly underpowered meaning that they have far fewer subjects or they're not using designs that optimize the amount of information that they can get about their participants. So with that very low level of power, it's impossible to get that level of support in the published literature without some sort of bias mechanism at play. That's a logical necessity that had to happen. We also just know it's true from stories that everybody tells and and whatnot. And then so uh, the problem is yep. then sorry to just try That's to right. like yeah. break it down. The problem is then that we overestimate certain things that make sense to us. I guess you know we read about certain things that relate to each other or so, and we just keeps being published. Yeah, we find this again. We find this again. We find this again. But yep. actually, the data did not fully support. We don't have reason to fully trust the data on these relations that we think are very established between two things, for example, yeah. That's absolutely right. And it could be for a combination of reasons. It could be that the results that you're actually looking at are untrustworthy themselves because Mm -hmm. they've been modified in some way, engaging in questionable research practices or p-hacking, where you you test something 15 different ways and only report the way that worked and not the other 14 ways. Worked here being, you know, getting a statistical significant result. Or it could be through not including studies, whole studies that were not in support of the hypothesis. So it's distorted no matter how you think about it. And I often say it used to be the case that when I approached a research article, I believed it until I saw evidence that I shouldn't. I say, oh, this this is a valid finding unless I see evidence that suggests I should be doubtful. I have completely switched that to the other direction. Mm-hmm. I don't believe anything until I see sufficient evidence that I should. Yeah. And the reason why I've made that switch is I know enough about our past research practices and what researchers have been doing to know that that's the only justifiable way to approach the existing literature. Yeah, and maybe also to say that it doesn't always come down to individual decisions, but also again to socialization, right? So how do you, so us as early career researchers, how do we learn to, you know, like what is expected from us to publish? Like what should, how should a paper look like? How should results look like? And how does open science now fix this problem? Or like what is the new, what would you say? How, how, yeah, how does open science help with this problem? 
Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of ways in which it does. I think open science itself, sometimes the term gets criticized because it refers to a lot of different practices and principles and activities. And so the idea that any one of those things would solve this problem is false. It's really a whole-scale reformation of how we go about doing our research. But I think there's some core principles that are really important. One of them is transparency. And I think that's a good place to start, just to be as clear as possible about how you ran a study, what you included in the study, what you planned ahead of time versus what you decided to do after looking at the data. Yeah. You know, actually just being honest about what you did, not trying different things from every angle and then only reporting the one that gives you the results that look the best, right? Yeah. But being completely transparent, that's an important first step, I yeah. think of just being open about that. Being transparent then can at least buy you the possibility of having credibility, right? Yeah. If you're transparent and then I, I, if I have your article that I don't believe, cause I just saw it, right? So here's mm -hmm. your new article. I don't believe it cause that's where I start. But I see <laughs> that you've posted your data openly available. Mm -hmm. All your analysis scripts are openly available. You have disclosures in your article that you're reporting everything that you did. You have mm -hmm. a clear section that is the tests that were planned ahead of time and that those were pre-registered. And I have access to that pre-registration plan so I can see whether you actually did what you said you were going to do. Mm -hmm. And you have a separate section that describes all your exploratory analyses that you tried and that you wanted to see what was going on. All of that transparency can buy you some credibility. It doesn't guarantee yeah. it yeah. <laughs> by any means, but that will be, allows me to at least see, okay, they're being open about their work. I can go in mm -hmm. and check anything mm -hmm. that I am concerned about if I have questions about anything. And that greatly improves the research. Yeah. And there's really, the only drawback to doing that is that it's not what people were socialized to do. It wasn't what your supervisors were socialized to do, right? Yeah. It wasn't what you were socialized to do. It's a different form of doing research. One thing that stands out to me really starkly is whenever I bring in new undergraduate research assistants and I talk to them about open science movement and I talk to them about the way research had been done in the past and their mind is blown. Mm -hmm. They say, why hasn't it always been this way? They all, I think a naive view of how science operates is within the open science mode, that things are transparent, that they're accessible, that people share, <laughs> right? Yeah. That results can be reproduced. That should be the default mode. Yeah. And they can't believe that it's not the default mode. Meanwhile, those who have been socialized so heavily into the system have convinced themselves that the maladaptive way that we've done things is actually the default mode. That's how we do science. So there are a lot of changes going on right now, really. I was just wondering, like, what if I'm a maybe bachelor student, master student or a PhD student and I'm working with a supervisor who's really been socialized into the, I say, like classic scientific system and it's maybe not so open to all these like practices. I mean... What could be like first steps that I could take or maybe also nice resources? Because I, I know you also co-authored an article recently, I think, with really like really nice specific advice for graduate students that I found mm -hmm. super helpful. And also we really discussed in our team. So that's great. <laughs> really <laughs> very nice article. So like, do you have some really concrete tips um, for students? Maybe where can they get started? So maybe first steps or sure, resources? Absolutely. Maybe? 
And I'm glad to hear you like that paper uh, to give credit to my co-authors who did, the lead authors did much more of the work, mm-hmm. Uma Kathawala and Priya Silverstein, who are both, well, Priya has graduated now, but they were both graduate students. So it was meant to be yeah. sort of graduate student focused. I actually had some reticence about being on the paper at all because I thought this should really be a graduate student thing, but they convinced me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that, that article was meant to make it a little bit easier for people to, it's called easing into open science, that the, here's some different, some very concrete steps that you can engage in instead of being overwhelmed by all the different methods and practices that are available. But more to your specific question, what I recommend when students or postdocs have uh, resistant supervisors is you show them, don't tell them. Mm -hmm. Say you want to pre-register your next project. Going to your supervisor and saying, hey, I think I want to pre-register this. What do you think about this? That's not a great idea. Because that gives them the opportunity to say, well, there's a lot of problems with free registration. You know, I'm not sure it's really going to help things. It's not, you know, it's just all the defenses kind of can come up. In contrast, if you write up a pre-registration plan, right, even if it's a draft, but here's my pre-registration, here's what I'm thinking, and you present that to your supervisor, Mm -hmm. almost any supervisor would be delighted to get that kind of thing because it showed you were thoughtful, you're thinking through all the details, you're trying to plan things. They can immediately see the concrete, tangible value Mm -hmm. of doing it. You can strip the words pre-registration from all of it, right? Just here's my plan (laughs) for this project. And it's great. Same with things like file organization and having, you know, a reproducible workflow with all your analysis code documented and clearly laid out. You show that to them. You say, you know, you do a bunch of analysis and you can send that to your supervisor with the data and say, here's what everything I did. You can see the code. You can check anything you want to. That's super impressive, right? Mm -hmm. Who wouldn't be excited about that? Maybe no one wants to check it, but at least they'd see the... (laughs) They should want to check it. But I think strategies like that are the most effective is rather than sometimes it's the concept is and the abstract concept is what the barrier is because the practices are pretty difficult to argue against. And so if Mm -hmm. you engage in the practice and show it, you know, without doing anything that would severely undermine lab practices and things, just as a caveat, you know, don't like completely reorganize everything without talking to your supervisor. But especially with pre-registration, I think it's really easy to just do it. And I think it shows initiative and thoughtfulness. And it's decisions that you need to make along the way anyways, right? So why not make them before even looking into the data? Already decide what is your question? What are you interested in? Which method do you want to use? You can decide all these things beforehand instead of while you're already at it midway, think of what you want to do, right? Yeah. And if there are seven ways you want to try something, great. Put that all in there. Say, these are the seven Mm -hmm. ways that I'm going to do this. You know, it's great. And I think I'm a big advocate of that, generally called robustness testing, right? Does your finding, you know, are your findings fragile or are they robust? If they only show up when you have this very specific combination of conditions, or is it kind of like no matter what you do, mm-hmm. you're going to still see that same pattern of findings? And I should say, fragile findings sometimes aren't necessarily bad. They're just, you need to understand them as such, yeah. right? And I think when engaging in robustness testing really helps with that. But that should all be thought of prior to looking at the data. All right, one final question for you. How do you stay motivated in your job as a researcher? Oh, that's an easy one. Students. <laughs> <laughs> Students are the best. So, I mean, that's one of the best parts of, you know, going back to the beginning, you know, I like to have some closure on things. I wanted to be a therapist, right? But I want to be a therapist because I liked helping people. I like to listen to people. I like to provide, be a guide in some sense. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very much what I get to do with students, right? It's in a different context, 
But mentoring and working directly with students is actually, in many ways, especially with PhD students, has a lot of similarities to therapy, <laughs> right? <laughs> helping them work through their problems, helping yeah. them get out of a rut. You know, it's, it's limited, usually limited to, you know, the work context, but there's a lot of overlap in terms of the practice. And being able to work with them and help them develop their ideas, helping them get to a point where they do things in no way more than what I know, right? That's mm -hmm. always really exciting. And seeing them sort of figure out what direction to take their talents in, I think is really, it's really fun, right? So I, as the researcher, as the as a supervisor, sort of provide this context in which hopefully the students can develop into whatever type of researcher, academic person they want to be. And I think that's just really fun to see how this, me as a constant and my general research lab as a constant can produce and foster students in so many different ways, mm -hmm. I think is really exciting and fun. So. Thank you so much, Moin, for joining us today and for helping You're us welcome. increase visibility of outstanding social scientists <laughs> as yourself. <laughs> and Absolutely, also, happy to be here. Yeah, of cutting-edge research in general. So thank you all for listening and talk soon. We want to thank Minor Revisions for the music, Max Kersten for post-production, Lotte Koeman for logo design and Zeynep Altai for artwork. Make sure to visit our website for bonus materials and to follow us on social media at Researching Diversity Podcast. Stay tuned and talk soon!